0: Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it.
1: Our Father God, uh, we know that only the Lord Jesus can open our eyes, and we pray that he would do that this evening, uh, not just to see who he is, but to see that he is worth it. Amen. Look, we are um, a very health-conscious culture. We're a very healthy culture. You wouldn't know it from looking at me, maybe, but uh, Britain is a very healthy place today, by and large. with the second lowest smokers per population of the whole of Europe. Uh, everybody is now a member of a gym. Not everybody goes, but everybody's a member of a gym. And it's the interesting thing is that the language has changed. People now use moral language for health. The way you eat, the way you look after your body is seen as a moral issue, that it's, it's wrong, it's sinful not to take care of yourself. All of which is great and good. But there is a dangerous sort of undercurrent to this obsession with health. And that is that as a culture, we are very, very, very obsessed with me. Uh, there was a, a couple of interesting things I read in the, in the press recently. So a New York Times article on lifestyle gurus, I think it'll appear on the screen. Um, and it wrote these very interesting things it was about um, a thing called Goop, which apparently is a high-end product that you eat, which frankly from the name I find extraordinary, the triumph of marketing. But there we go. Uh, and the, um, they, they said this, what goop and acolytes like moon juice sell is the notion it's not only, sorry, it's moon juice, isn't it? I'm losing my marbles. Goop is, yeah, lots of chops. Anyway, um, I'm just showing that I really don't know anything about these things deliberately. Um, but what goop and acolytes like moon juice sell is the notion it's not only excusable, but worthy for a person to spend hours a day focused on her tiniest mood shifts, food choices beauty rituals, exercise habits, bathing routines, and sleep schedules. What they sell is self-absorption as the ultimate luxury product. It's very striking. Learning to love yourself is seen as one of the bedrocks of being a healthy person. Being true to yourself and following your dreams is seen as, well, that's one of your fundamental duties in life. You can't go in the right direction unless you're being true to yourself. Our culture has uh, focused on a sort of virtuous self-fulfillment as the essence of what it means to live a good human life. And the truth is that I think, by and large, we Christians in the West have baptised that. By which I mean that the church has adopted it and, and basically given it a Christianized language. So a commentator on the church, Wade Clark Roof, notes, there's been a radical shift in Christian writing from an ethic of self-denial to an ethic of self-fulfillment. When you read Christian books, they're about self-fulfillment. Church vision statements these days talk about helping you fulfill your destiny in this generation and unlocking your unique potential and the plan that God has for you. Again, there was an article in the secular press um, just a couple of weeks ago about uh, a very large church, and it was talking about the leader of the church, and after noting that he didn't teach the God-will-make-you-rich stuff that his father had taught, the, the commentator said this. He seems to speak a more millennial strain of individualism, where everyone is hustling to be not the richest, but the truest, smartest, most beautiful version of themselves, while social media keeps score. Is that really what the Christian life is about? That if you come to trust in Jesus, his mission, his goal, his aim is to make you the truest, most fulfilled, most virtuous, beautiful version of yourself that you can be. That if you come to Jesus... What he offers you is a life which is marked by fulfillment and satisfaction now. To put it bluntly, is Jesus just the ultimate lifestyle guru? Well, when we come to the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, he says in Mark 8, if anyone would come after me, he must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And tonight we're going to learn from the man who literally took up a cross what it means for us to metaphorically do it as we follow him and how ironically it is denying myself that leads to the fullness of life. So let's look at Mark 8. Uh, We'll dive in, uh, just a reminder of last week, so we'll uh, dive in at 8.27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, who do people say I am? This is the question that has dominated the first section of Mark, as we saw last week. People have seen what Jesus does, heard what he teaches, and said, Who is this guy? I mean, who does that? Who calms storms and heals the dead? What sort of a person is this? Who is he? And so Jesus says, Who do people say I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And now finally... Jesus opens the eyes of the disciples and Peter answered, you are the Messiah. The Messiah or Christ just means anointed one. And the great hope of the Old Testament of God's people was the Messiah. He was the one who would fulfill all the things the Old Testament promised, an anointed savior king who would rescue and rule God's people. And Peter has just figured out Jesus Jesus is the one that the whole Old Testament points to, the one who will rescue, the one who will rule, the one who will bring God's blessing. So Jesus is the Messiah. The whole first section of Mark is built towards this recognition and now everything changes on this very moment. Jesus stops revealing who he is and starts revealing what kind of Messiah he is, how he'll rule and how he will rescue and so the first point, uh, the Messiah must suffer and die before rising in glory." Verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man. Now, son of man is, a, is Jesus' most common title for himself. It's deliberately ambiguous. In the Old Testament, sometimes it just means a human. In Ezekiel, God says to Ezekiel, "Son of man it just means you're a human. You were born of a man. But in Daniel 7:14, the Son of Man is a, is a divine figure. Whom God the Father gives all authority and power to, to rule the universe. And so it seems like Jesus, uh, Peter says, you are the Messiah. And it seems like Jesus is saying, you don't even know the half of it. I'm not just the Messiah. I am the Son of Man. I am God himself come to rule. It feels like Jesus is kind of fueling the fires of their expectation of this great glorious king who will politically and militarily destroy all God's enemies and rule in Jerusalem on David's throne. But then Jesus says something utterly unexpected that drops a bomb into the middle of their messianic expectations. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, And be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now the first thing to notice is a little word that appears twice in that verse. And it's the word must. It is not just that bad stuff will happen to the Messiah, shock, Bad stuff must happen to him. It is necessary. It is required. He can't be the Messiah without it. Central to his mission to save people is that he suffers and dies. Suffering, in other words, won't be a a sort of punctuation point in a life that's basically victory and comfort and ease. The headline description of Jesus' life will be He suffers. And just as shockingly, the, the one promised as God's king will be utterly rejected by God's people. You can tell that because he, he chooses the three different groups that led the three parts, if you like, of God's people. The, the, the secular, the, the political, the religious, all the various factions within God's people are represented. He says he is going to be utterly rejected by everybody, by the very ones he's come to save. Now look, the Old Testament is actually full of surprising saviors. Everywhere you look that there is salvation in the Old Testament, it comes somewhere pretty random. You've got uh, a couple who can't have children. They're told, oh, the Savior will be your child. Well, that's a surprise. You've got a coward who's hiding in a cave. Oh, you're going to be the mighty, brave warrior who will lead God's army. Well, that's a surprise. You've got the hero who will be the Savior is is a lowly woman from a foreign tribe. I mean, that's just a surprise. You've got a great massive giant, an experienced soldier, a fearsome warrior, and oh, he's going to be taken out by a shepherd boy. That's a surprise. But none of those saviors is as surprising as this one, the ultimate saviour, the saviour who must be killed and then after three days rise again. Can you imagine what it would have been like to hear this if you've been raised in Sunday school in all of your expectations with this idea that the Messiah will be this great, mighty military leader? Actually, you don't need to to imagine it at all because Peter tells us, verse 32, he spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You're the Messiah. You're God's mighty king. You don't get killed by the enemies. You crush them. That's what the Messiah does, Jesus. Don't you know? And now, finally, you see, why on earth is it? Have you read through Mark's gospel ever and noticed that Jesus keeps healing people and then saying, don't tell anybody? What? Why? And uh, did you notice the verse we skipped? Verse 30. Peter says, oh my goodness, you're the Messiah. And the first thing Jesus says, shh, don't tell anyone about me. Why? And... And now you see why it is, just a few verses earlier, as we saw last week in 8.22-26, why is it that just before Peter says, you're the Messiah, does Jesus kind of heal a guy, but it doesn't quite work, so he sort of sees people as if they're trees wandering around, and then Jesus has to heal him a second time, and then he sees clearly. All of it, all of it is, is to help us understand, look, the disciples, they sort of get it, But until they really get how the Messiah will save, what he's come to do, they don't understand Jesus. And so they're not ready to go out and tell people about him. They're utterly blind as to what sort of Messiah he is. And then we really get hero to zero, verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God. But merely human concerns. Now, does that seem a bit harsh to you? But this isn't just a clash on messianic campaign strategy. Look, Jesus, I do think we should probably run with the victorious conqueror slogan. I just think it's got more traction in the political arena at the moment. Now, Peter has completely misunderstood everything about the Messiah. His mind is full of human concerns and so he thinks when the Messiah comes, he will deal with the things I can see, the problems that I can feel, the problems that affect me day to day. The, the Messiah will deal with climate change, he'll, he'll deal with budget deficits, security threats, immigration. Well, back then it was kind of more just Roman occupation. But you, his, in his mind, he's thinking the Messiah will deal with the things that I feel, I see, I perceive to be the pressing problems the Messiah will deal with what humanity wants the Messiah to deal with. But Jesus has come to deal not with human concerns, but with the problem that lies underneath every other problem. He has come to save us from our sins. Back in chapter 2, he came across a paralysed man who was lowered down in front of him while he was teaching. And Jesus says to this guy who's lying on a mat, unable to move, has to be carried by his friends and he says, your sins are forgiven. It's an extraordinary thing to say. But his point was, paralysis is awful. It's ruining your 60, 70, 80 years on earth. But your sins will ruin you for all eternity. And so the most important thing for me to deal with is your sin. And then because he's kind, he also heals his legs. Your sins will ruin you for all eternity. And so the Messiah has come not to deal with human concerns, but to forgive us for our sins. And the only way that Jesus can be the Messiah, who saves us from our greatest enemy, which is sin and God. Because as a sinner, God is as dangerous to me as as if I was foolish enough to cover myself in petrol and God is fire. And as sinners, we cannot approach God. And when we face him in judgment, we will be in terrible danger. And having lived our lives for ourselves, we will be cast out for all eternity. And the only way that the Messiah can save us is not to convince God, oh, don't judge them after all. God's good, he has to judge evil. The only way the Messiah can save us is to take our place and to suffer the fire of God's judgment in himself on the cross. To suffer hell, eternal death, banishment from God in himself in our place on the cross. Now who on earth would want to stop Jesus from saving us from eternal death? That's why Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. The Messiah must suffer and die before rising in glory because the Messiah has come to save not just the disciples, but you and me as well from our sins so that we will not face eternal judgment. Secondly, the Messiah's followers must die to self to share in his glory. Verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. Now, why does Mark record that he calls the crowd to him at this point, as well as the disciples? You know what I think it is? I think what Mark is about to say is so awful in one sense, so unpleasant to our ears, that he doesn't want us having any excuse of looking at the Bible and think, well, Jesus is really actually focusing on the disciples at this stage. So I think when, when he says what he says in the rest of this verse, it's really just about how the disciples should live. It's not about, you know, ordinary Christians like you and me. You know, uh, this is advanced level Christianity just for the leaders, the apostles. No, it's for everyone. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves And take up their cross and follow me. So let me say this very, very, very carefully. Taking up your cross, denying yourself, dying to self, is as necessary for being a follower of Jesus as Jesus dying on the cross was necessary for our salvation. There was no way Jesus could save us without dying on the cross, and the truth is, there is no way you and I can follow Jesus without taking up our cross. That's the deal. What does it feel like to follow Jesus? I wonder if you've ever been asked that. What's it like to be a Christian? It feels like taking up a cross. And well, what does that actually mean? I mean, we all have our crosses to bear. It's one of the most devalued phrases in the English language. Got an ingrowing toenail, demanding boss, noisy neighbors. None of that sort autobi- of, well, that's not autobiographical, just in case you get worried. And we reply, well, we all have our crosses to bear, don't we? In Jesus' day, the cross meant death, and it meant a particular sort of death. Two things, it was a death that maximized pain. People basically died on the cross as they're pinned up in agony by the torture overcoming their body through just the sheer unbearability of the pain over hours or days. But it didn't just maximise pain, it also maximised shame as they're hung, pinned, naked in public as you writhed around in agony. It was shame and it was pain and it was always death. But the key to what he means is in the second half of verse 34. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Must deny themselves is what comes before it. In other words, cross illustrates deny self. He's saying it's not a literal crucifixion. It's a way of quantifying, a way of helping you picture what I mean when I say you must deny yourself. The cross is that point, therefore, at which following or obeying Jesus means denying myself, my desires, my comfort, my very self and putting it to death. Let me say that again. The cross is the point at which following Jesus or obeying him means denying myself and putting my desires, my comfort, my very self to death. That's what the cross means. And when I ask, uh, at what point is enough enough, Jesus? At what point can I say, look, this, this hurts too much? This costs too much, Jesus? The answer is the cross. Look at what it costs Jesus to bring our salvation. Has it cost me what it cost Jesus to suffer hell on the cross in my place? That's what it means to follow Christ. To become a Christian is to follow the Jesus who died on the cross. And to follow him is like daily death. A life poured out in the service of God and others. Now we do need to be careful. This isn't the only thing that Jesus says about the Christian life. He also says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he says in John 4 that if we come to him, he will fill our souls and we'll never thirst again. He'll satisfy that eternal hole in us that no earthly possession or relationship or achievement can ever fill. But the thing is, I'm never tempted to ignore those passages. The thing we're tempted to ignore or reinterpret or downplay is the requirement that if I'm to follow him, I must walk the path that he walked. The path marked by denying self and giving everything to serve God and others. It's not a great selling point, is it, of Christianity. So okay, here's a choice. Death or cake? Death or cake? Which are you going to (laughs) choose? Cake, I'm glad somebody's awake. (laughs) Cake it is. It's not quite that simple here though. You see, verses 35 to 38 explain why we should choose death rather than cake. In the original Greek, um, each verse begins with the word for. Each verse is a a because, a reason. It's a bit clunky in the English, so it's not carried up in our, um, our translation. But it is, each verse is a reason to do what Jesus says in verse 34 and deny ourselves now. So verse 35, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. It is not wrong to want to save your life, Jesus says. You should, but only Jesus can save your eternal life. And if we're not willing to put up with the difficulty of following Jesus now, then we're protecting a few earthly years and jeopardizing eternity. Verse 36. For what good is it for a man, for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? National lottery this weekend was eighty million pounds. Imagine if someone said to you, um, "I can give you the winning numbers." You'd also obviously need a time machine because it took place yesterday or whatever. But uh, imagine if somebody said, "Look, just before the na- the lottery was uh, was announced, I can tell you the winning numbers. You can buy a ticket. Eighty million pounds will be yours. Enough for a flat deposit in Zone One. All yours." All, you know, just go buy the ticket. Ah, but the, uh, here's the deal you die the next day, 10 a.m. Have a fun night with 80 million pounds. Not such a good deal, though, anymore if you die at 10 o'clock the next morning. What do you gain by being fabulously rich for a night and forfeiting 60, 70 years of life? What do you gain if you win in this life, whatever winning in this life looks for you, if it means you end up cut off from God for all eternity? Verse 37. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now, the point here, I think, is different. He's assuming you've got that, and so you think, oh, okay, Uh, no, I don't want to forfeit my eternal soul. And so he says, okay, if the cost of following Jesus is too much in this life, then what is your plan on judgment day? What are you going to offer God to to pay for the debt of sin? What are you going to, to offer to pay your way out of hell? What have you got to say to God on judgment day? 38, for if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his father's glory and with the holy angels. Shame was central to the cross and so he returns to shame at this point. And that word that he uses for deny in verse 34 is exactly the same word that's used for Peter's denial in chapter 14. When when just the, the shame of being joined with Jesus, the fear of what might happen to him if people think he's with Jesus, means he denies Jesus. And so the point in verse 38 is very clear. He says, you can be ashamed of Jesus because, well... You long for approval in the world now and trusting in the man who died on a cross has never been a popular thing in this world. And you want to avoid that. So you're ashamed of Jesus now. But if you do that, then when Jesus returns in glory, he will be ashamed of you. Or you can be shamed and sidelined now and again by the world because you live for and long for the approval of Jesus. And you won't be as popular, and you won't get ahead. But when Jesus returns in glory, he will reward you far beyond anything you can imagine for all eternity. It is cross and then crown. That was the pattern for Christ cross first, and then crown. And that is the pattern for Christians. Uh, The German martyr to the Nazis, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous statement still stands, there will be no crown wearers in heaven who were not cross bearers on earth. So let me ask you, what do you value most in this life? Let me warn you, following Christ might cost you that And that can seem like too great a price to pay. There's a wonderful passage in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, where he addresses uh, that fear we have with the thinking of Jesus from this passage. And he says, Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end, keep back nothing. Nothing in you that has not died can ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Let me finish by asking you what your starting point is for working stuff out in the Christian life. What's your starting point? Where do you begin when, uh, when the Bible says costly things about who you can marry or have sex with? About how hard you can pursue career and getting financially comfortable? About how costly your obligation to the poor is? About whether you really have to risk your reputation and popularity by telling others about Jesus? about how you deal with those who've hurt or disappointed you. When you're thinking through those things, what is your starting point? What do you expect the Christian life to look like? And here I do think we have bought into the prosperity gospel, not the, not the sort of obscene version of it with the, the Rolls-Royce cars and the pastors promising you millions and millions, but the, the prosperity gospel light the, the slightly more British version of it, where, no, I don't think God's gonna make me rich, and I don't think he's gonna, you know, have me marrying a supermodel, but I do expect that, you know, things will work out financially. I do expect that I will get married. And I do expect life will be basically fulfilling, and, and I do expect my relationships and friendships to be, you know, not too costly and painful and difficult. You know, I, I think life should be broadly pretty good you'll end up in a very different position if that's your starting point. From a starting point of God loves me and wants me to be happy in eternity and so he calls me to trust in and follow Jesus Christ. And like Jesus, I expect that life here will often feel like putting myself to death. Depending on which of those two things shapes your view of what the Christian life should look like, you will make very different decisions all the way through. You know, we cringe when we read in verse 32, Peter rebukes Jesus. I mean, it's never going to go well. Look, Jesus, I know you're the Messiah. I know you're God in human flesh. Come to earth. But I really think you've got a few things to learn from me. So let me tell you how it should be. We're all backing away from Peter at that point. And yet isn't that exactly what you and I do when the cross of self-denial feels blisteringly rough and unbearably heavy on our shoulders? Jesus, I just don't think you've got this one right. I I, I could serve you so much better if if you took away this. I I would be uh, so much more effective for you and I'd be so much more free to serve you if you gave me that or or if you just made this easier or, or got rid of that or changed that person. Oh, I could, I could serve you so much better. It feels like you're asking me to deny my very self, Jesus. Now, Paul was not shy in 2 Corinthians 12 about asking God to take away the thorn in his flesh. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with praying for painful things to change. Let me be very clear about that. But do be careful that we're not rebuking God for the fact that our lives are patterned after the cross. Beware that. It's the uh, 500th anniversary of the start of the Reformation this year, which means up and down the country congregations are having to put up with Reformation themed illustrations um, from sad history buff pastors like myself. Um, so suck it up because it's going to be happening uh, for the rest of the year. Um, we were hearing, um, I was at a conference this week and was being told um, about Martin Luther's funeral speech at uh, the funeral of a man called John the Elector in 1532. Now years before at a trial in Augsburg, John had faced the choice of he can deny Luther and the gospel truth that Luther was proclaiming and politically he'd be all right and financially and physically he'd be safe or he could stand with Luther and risk um, being ostracized, imprisoned, attacked, risk losing everything in his position. And he stood with Luther and so as they committed his his body to the ground, Luther stood over his coffin and said, this is, is not his real death. When he stood up and owned Christ at his trial in Augsburg, that is when he suffered real death. And if you put your trust in Christ, you will have to deny yourself and take up your cross. And for each and every one of you, that will mean different things. As daily, you deny yourself. And put self to death. For some of us it will be more intense than others. But for all of us we will have to do it. But it does mean. That that death. Is the only death you will ever die. The death that everybody else fears. The death that spells the end for those who look for fulfilment in this life. It won't be death at all. But the pathway to paradise. And so the question comes. Do you trust God enough. To hand over your life to him. Do we trust him enough to reward us in eternity in a way which will make up for the crosses we've had to bear here? Only God and people last forever. Don't cling to things that do not last. Cling to Christ. Pour out yourself for other people and for God. Take up your cross and follow him. And one day you'll wear the crown just as he is wearing a crown today. Let's pray. Father we uh, don't want to take up crosses. Uh, we want you to be a god who just makes us comfortable and happy now. But we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ gave up his happiness now to come and be abused and misunderstood and rejected and hated and beaten and nailed to a cross so that we might be saved. And we pray that we would not think ourselves above him. And we pray that you would strengthen us. Strengthen us to take up our crosses wherever they feel particularly heavy right now. To be willing to deny ourselves to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us, we pray, to have assurance that just as Jesus rose from the dead to glory and honor and immortality, that if we trust in him, then our death will not be a death and that you will reward us beyond anything we can imagine. Amen.